So as we're continuing in this uh, series on 2 Corinthians, you know, we've been talking about this tension of what's, what's happening inside of me, these things that are occurring, that are going on in our lives, that we're not totally sure how they fit together exactly, right? How do these two things work together? How does this come together? And one of those kind of issues, those challenges, those, you know, that relationship, if you will, is, uh, is, is pride, the issue of pride. So if you think about pride, pride is just, you know, just by definition, it's this really positive, really good feeling in something that you have accomplished, right? So you feel really good because you've done something good. And, you know, if you're anything like me, uh, there are plenty of days where pride, like pride helps you out. Pride works for you, you know, because you have a good day. You go to work and you get things done or you get a good compliment. You know, something, something in the course of the day happens and you say, man, I got, I got an awful lot done today, or I did some really good work, I did some good things, you know, somebody gave me a compliment, something happened, and I feel really good. But then, if you're anything like me, you also have days where your pride, like, doesn't work for you, because you make, you make a mistake, or you don't get through your to-do list like you thought you would, or, you know, your kids do something, and you feel like, I'm a terrible parent, I can't believe this, like, so you have days where good things happen, and that helps your pride and you feel good, and then there are days where bad things happen, and you're not, you're not feeling too confident, you're not feeling too excited, you just don't have that sense of self-worth, if you will. And then depending on who you are, you might even, uh, that might cause you to spiral a little bit, where you start telling yourself all sorts of terrible negative things about yourself. Like, oh man, I'm, I'm no good, da 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 it just kind of spirals out of control. And there's all kinds of reasons that we can, um, you know, struggle with whether it's, you know, having, like, for example, low self-esteem. Uh, sometimes it happens because a parent, a coach, a teacher, somebody you really looked up to and respected, maybe said some pretty hurtful words at one time, kind of implying, like, well, you're, you're never going to amount to anything. Uh, you're, you're not good. You're not good enough. You know, something like that, and that just kind of crushed you. And no matter how many years it's been, that, that kind of tape is on repeat in your head. Like, I am not good enough or I will never amount to this, or I will never be, or I can't be, and it just kind of comes back up. So you make a mistake, and you just kind of go back down that, down that road again, and it's tough. Or maybe there's a particular mistake you made once in your life, and no matter what you try to do to move past it or recover, it just keeps cycling through, like, I'm, I am this mistake. I did this thing, and I can never recover. You just can't get over it, right? And so pride, pride definitely at times can help you, and at times it can really hurt you. So what always happens to us is because we, we want to feel good about ourselves. Right? Like we want to have some, some kind of a healthy sense of pride, a healthy sense of self-worth, self-esteem. But what often happens is when our pride gets hurt, well, our body develops self-defense mechanisms to protect us. So you start to realize, man, I make mistakes. I, people say things about me that I don't like, that I don't appreciate, that really hurt, that cut deep. And so you learn ways to protect yourself. So I'll tell you mine. Mine is perfectionism. So I learned somehow, you know, being a kid growing up, I learned somehow along the way that to protect myself, I'll just be perfect all the time at everything. And if I'm perfect, then nobody can ever tell me that I made a mistake, that I did something I shouldn't have. Like, I'm never going to have the embarrassment of, oh, I shouldn't have said that, I shouldn't have done that. So I'll just be perfect. Now, there are times where that can 
be helpful, like making sure, hey, let's make sure we've dotted all the I's, crossed all the T's, let's make sure this is a good plan, have we thought through everything, have we talked to all the people that we should that are involved in this decision, sometimes that's helpful. Other times that's obviously just frustrating because I'll never make a decision sometimes because it's like, well, I don't know for sure if that's going to work, so let's just wait. And sometimes you can't just wait and see. You've just got to try something and see what happens. You know, or, you know, you just kind of, sometimes I'll just get stuck thinking, well, I just, I don't know if that's good enough. Or instead of letting other people come in and help, I've set this standard on myself that's just so incredibly high that, well, nobody else can help me because my standard's way up here. And nobody's ever going to be able to do that. And I can't even do that. And it's almost like I've got this little inner critic, this little voice in my head that always, like, kind of chirps in and reminds me, you're not that good, you're not doing a great job, what about this, what about that, you could have, you could have, you could have, and it just, it can be crushing. So maybe, maybe you can relate to some of that, but maybe you have built a different sort of self-defense mechanism for yourself. Like maybe it's not perfectionism, maybe it's anger. Like you learned that if, if the, the way to protect yourself, your pride, your ego, is well, I'll just get really, really angry. Because if I get angry, I will shut people down. I will scare people from challenging me, from pulling out that I made a mistake, or maybe, I, you know, rather than face that, hey, I didn't have all the information, or whoops, I shouldn't have done that, it's you get angry, you shut people down. Or, you know, maybe it's you've learned just to kind of pretend to be somebody different based on who you're with. You've learned, well, over here I need to be really, really funny, because that's how they want me to be. And over here I've got to be really serious and put together. And over here, I've got to be like this. And over here, everybody cares about, you know, quoting The Office or Seinfeld. So I'll do that. And what you begin to discover is, I don't actually know who I am anymore. And I've just got all these masks. And so I put one off, and then I run over here, and I take it off, and I put on another one. And then you start to wonder, wait, who am I? And maybe you even forget. Or you just, you kind of feel kind of gross, like, I'm not, I don't feel like I'm actually me around anybody. I don't feel like anyone actually knows who I am. I just pretend to be all these versions of me to impress everybody so I don't, in the process, get hurt. And there's all kinds of ways we do that because we want to feel good about ourselves. We want people to like us. We want to do a good job. Like, that's, that's all fine. That's all good. But a lot of times we go about it in really dangerous and unhealthy ways. So we kind of get caught in this tension of, well, can I have, like, a healthy sense of pride, a healthy sense of self-worth, and not feel like I'm just lying to everybody? And I feel like I'm actually a healthy version of me and, like, you know, have respect and have pride. Can, can, can that even be possible? Or for people to like me, am I going to have to know on the inside, I'm just lying through my teeth all the time. I'm pretending that I'm really good. I'm pretending I'm somebody that I'm not. Is there any way to do that? And I actually think there is. Because I think the Apostle Paul went through a similar sort of situation in his own life. And I think he, he had to learn some things and struggle with some things and have God help him in that. So the passage in 2 Corinthians that we're in today, this is one that actually helps me at times with my own perfectionism. It reminds me, hey, you don't, you don't need to do that. It's okay. You don't have to do that. So we're going to start in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1 through 6, and I'm actually going to read to you uh, from the New Living Translation for this part, because I kind of like how they, um, how they put this. And, and so Paul writes, are we beginning to praise ourselves again? Are we like others who need to bring you letters of recommendation or who ask you to write such letters on their behalf? Surely not. 
the only letter of recommendation we need is you yourselves. Your lives are a letter written in our hearts. Everyone can read it and recognize our good work among you. Clearly, you are a letter from Christ, showing the result of our ministry among you. This letter is written not with pen and ink, but with the spirit of the living God. It is carved not on tablets of stone, but on human hearts. We are confident of all this because of our great trust in God through Christ. It is not that we think we are qualified to do anything on our own. Our qualification comes from God. He has enabled us to be ministers of his new covenant. This is a covenant not of written laws, but of the Spirit. The old written covenant ends in death, but under the new covenant, the Spirit gives life. So the focus of what Paul is writing there is in verse 4. We are confident of all this because of our great trust in God through Christ. So really what he's talking about in chapter 3 and a little bit of chapter 2 is how on earth can you be confident in God? And that confidence is actually what has helped change Paul's pride into this confidence in Christ. He's actually exchanged it. And there's a few ways that he does this. Now the main one is in, in kind of the end of chapter 2 and chapter 3, Paul has these three kind of metaphors or images, word pictures, if you will. And they're pretty, they're a little foreign to us because we don't exactly have them just in our day and age. So if you sit down, if you've ever tried to read 2 Corinthians, and I, I find myself doing this, I get to about midway through chapter 2, and I'm just like, man, Paul, this is a lot, and I'm not totally sure what you mean. So just to kind of get our context, I want to kind of just talk a little bit about these three word pictures a little bit. So you can kind of get back to what maybe he's, what he's talking about. So the first one comes there in what we just read in chapter 3. He talks about letters of recommendation. He's like, do I, am, I, am I beginning to praise myself again? Do I need letters of recommendation? And back in Paul's day, uh, there were two ways, two times, it was socially acceptable to brag on yourself or to boast. The first was when you're new to town and no one knows who you are, and so you need to build trust with people. So you would kind of brag about yourself. You would boast. A speaker would get up in the marketplace and would begin to list their credentials, where they went to school, who they studied from, all their accomplishments. Like They would just go on and on and on. Or they would literally come with a letter written by somebody else that would be known and respected, and that person would speak on their behalf. Hey, you can trust this person because they've done this, they've done this, they've gone here, they've been there. You can trust them. Very much like, you know, when you apply for a job, you have references. Because, hey, this person said this. Is that true? Can you tell me about their character? Can you tell me about their job performance? Like, some of that's helpful. So that's the first time you could do it. The second time it was acceptable was when you had a broken relationship and you needed to rebuild trust. You could come back in with a letter of recommendation or you could start to brag about yourself, boast about yourself. Other than that, they were like, yeah, that's a joke. Don't do that. But those two times you could. So this letter, 2 Corinthians, is the second form. Paul has recognized his relationship with the Corinthians is damaged, and he's trying to rebuild their trust. But what he does here is he doesn't do the normal cultural thing of, let me tell you all the things I've done. Let me just list how great I am. He doesn't do that at all. He says, actually, it's all about the Holy Spirit. It's all about what Christ has done. I came, I ministered to you. So kind of what he's saying is, Corinthian church, you're my letter of recommendation. Because they would remember when he came to help start that church, and they'd remember times when 
Paul would teach a lesson or preach a sermon or he'd come by for a birthday party or a wedding celebration. Um, times he'd come over during a hard season and pray for, for your family. Times when there'd be a funeral and he'd come by to visit and spend time with you. Like they would think of all of those things. And Paul's saying, look, he's not going to say now, now, you know what I did. That's not what he's doing. He's saying the Holy Spirit worked through me to do something powerful in your life. So it's not about me. It's about what the Holy Spirit did. But you know that the Holy Spirit used me in a certain way, and that's my letter of recommendation. That's why if you're going to trust me again, that's why you trust me. So he doesn't play, he doesn't play the normal game. And here's the deal. He knows personally about letters of recommendation. Because if you would go back to the book of Acts, the very first time we meet Paul, he goes by the name of Saul of Tarsus. And Saul is given letters of recommendation that he takes to city to city, synagogue to synagogue, because he has been personally chosen by the Jewish leaders to go fix the Christian problem. Like, hey, we've got these people following Jesus. We can't have that. So Saul, why don't you go round them up, question them, do whatever you've got to do to figure out who's following Jesus, and let's, let's stop this thing. So he would show up at a synagogue and hand over a letter and it would be written by some top official, and they would say, this is Saul of Tarsus. These are, the, these are his credentials. He's been to this school. He's studied under this person and this person. Here's all the things he's done. So here's what we need you to do. You're going to give him the best office. You're going to find him a great place to live in your town while he's there. You're going to give him every resource he needs because he's going to fix this problem. And there you go. So as Saul went from town to town, giving his letter of recommendation over so that he could persecute Christians, question people, hunt them down, figure out who's worshiping Jesus. He knew all about letters of recommendation because they helped him do that. And then, of course, if you know the story, he's on the road to Damascus, and Jesus interrupts him and says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Jesus turns those very letters of recommendation that has been giving Saul a lot of pride into garbage. Like, those have sealed just how terrible you are. And so Paul knows firsthand, I don't need letters of recommendation. I did that once. Didn't work out so well. And so he's, he's saying, look, let's, it's not about what I've done. And I can guarantee you, Paul, while he was Saul, man, his pride, I'm sure there was a lot to feed his pride. Because there were whispers, I bet there were whispers about him in rooms and people would talk about him. Because he's studying under a man who shows up in your New Testament a couple of times named Gamaliel. And Gamaliel is, at that time, he was the leading Jewish teacher and leader. And when he shows up in your Bible, a couple times in the New Testament, he walks in the room, he commands everybody's attention, he says, like, a sentence, and everybody listens to him. Like, he's the guy who says, you know, I, about Jesus, it's better that one man should die for the whole nation than everybody should die. And everyone's like, you're right. And that's the end of that discussion. He also comes when uh, Peter and, and John get arrested in the book of Acts. He comes and he says, if what they're really doing is from God, then let them go, and we can't stop it. But if it's not from God, we don't need to keep them here. It'll fizzle out. Just wait. And everyone's like, yeah, that's, a, that's great. We should do what he says. And so they're saying, man, Saul studied under that guy. If, if he lived today, he'd probably, like, I, I imagine Saul would have probably just written his second New York Times bestseller and his Instagram account would begin pretty popular, and his YouTube channel would be getting probably a few million hits every video. And you'd start to see him at, at conferences. He's not the main speaker, but he's like, they make sure his picture's just a little bit bigger, and he, maybe he's on a few talk shows now, and you, you kind of know about him. 
And there'd probably be whispers like, could he be the next Gamaliel? Could he be the next guy? Could he like, could he? And so that probably just fed him. And he says, look, that doesn't matter anymore. He says, that's, that's the old me. The new me transformed by Jesus, that, that's not me. I don't care about that stuff anymore. Doesn't matter. Doesn't make me feel any better. So he uses that first image. But there's a second image back in chapter 2 that he uses. And again, these, all these images are about confidence. So back in chapter 2, he, he talks about how it's like, it's like Christ is leading us in this procession, this triumphal procession, and there's this sweet aroma in the air. And what he means by that is there's actually these Roman triumphal processions that they would have all been very familiar with. Think of it kind of like, like if we just sort of talked about like the Macy's Day Parade, almost every week, oh yeah, you've seen that on TV, or maybe you've even thought, wouldn't it be cool to go to New York and go to the Macy's Day Parade? Like it's just, people were in, people knew all about that. So if we could go back in time to the first century and go to Rome and see one of these, here's what, here's what would happen. The Roman army, after some major war had been won, think of like the end of World War I, end of World War II, they come marching through the city streets. Everyone's cheering and, and clapping and celebrating because they've won this war. And so here comes the military. And then at some point, all the captured enemy soldiers would come, would be marched through. And you'd, you know, boo and, uh, you know, throw eggs at them or something. And they're marched to the end of the parade route, usually the middle of the city, and there they will all be executed. So all those enemy soldiers know, at the end of this parade, we all die. Like, that's what they know is coming. And at some point in the parade, you're going to have people who, who carry banners and pictures, and they're telling you tales of the war and how great it was. And throughout the parade, there's people carrying incense, and that would fill the whole city with this really wonderful smell. Unless you're one of those enemy soldiers. Because it would smell good to everybody, but it would be a reminder to those soldiers this is our funeral march. Like, we die at the end of this. This is not, we don't want to be smelling this. And so Paul captures that image. He says, it's like that. But then he says, well, here's where Christ is in that parade. He's at the very end of the parade. Because at the end of that, that triumphal procession would come the general or the emperor or the commander, the champion, the person that you would say, that's the man responsible for this victory. And he would come in on this huge chariot with this, mighty team, think like the Budweiser horses, like pulling him all decked out, and everybody would cheer and applaud and celebrate and honor this one man. It's his parade. His, he's the one who got us the victory. And Paul says, there's that parade happening. And Jesus, it's his parade. So he's, he's leading us in this triumphal procession through the world, proclaiming that the good news has come, that Jesus is defeated evil and death on the cross. He's rose from the dead. And Paul's just saying, wherever he leads, I go. He's leading me in this triumphal procession, so wherever Jesus takes me, that's where I go. That's what I'm doing. It's not about doing things for myself and my own glory. Wherever Jesus leads, that's where I'm going. And then he has this third and final image in the second half of chapter 3. And he points back to Exodus chapter 34, which is a story about Moses goes up, he meets with God, he sees just a little bit of God, and then his face shines like the sun, and that freaks people out. And so he goes back, and the Israelites are terrified of this. They don't know what to do. So to protect them, Moses puts a veil over his face to kind of block the light so they can't see it. And it's possible Moses then started a practice where he would go meet with God, take his veil off to meet with God, then put his veil back on to go meet with everybody else so they wouldn't be afraid of this. And what Paul's doing is he's saying, look, we don't, we don't have to wear this veil anymore. 
Because here's the problem. Israel, the people of Israel, could not keep their hearts right in order to see what God was really up to. They couldn't keep their hearts in a position to recognize God's work. So if you notice in the Old Testament, there's just this vicious cycle that Israel goes through over and over again. They get right with God for a little bit. They're obedient. They do a good job. And then they, man, they mess up. They sin and fall big time. And then they're just trapped. In, everything's falling apart. Everything's terrible. And then they finally repent. And they're like, all right, we're, we're back on. We're, back, we're on fire for the Lord again. We're going to be obedient until the next big sin. And it just over and over and over. And Paul says, you know, the old covenant ministry was good. Like, obviously, good things happened with Moses, and God did good things in the world. But think about how much better it is now in the new covenant because of what Jesus has done. Because we don't have to veil and unveil our faces. In other words, we can actually go into God's presence like Moses, and he can actually break this cycle in our lives and actually change us. Paul, at the end of chapter 3, he puts it this way. Verse 18. And we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So there's just this ongoing work of transformation that Paul knows is happening. So he puts these three images together, and all three images are meant to tell us that we can have our confidence in God, not in ourselves. Say, okay, that's, those are interesting, but how, do those, how does that all connect? Like, how do we put these three images all together about confidence? Well, it kind of works like this. Because our pride is based on what you accomplish, what I accomplish. It's about what am I able to do and what am I not able to do. And in fact, C.S. Lewis even wrote once that pride doesn't get any joy out of just being good. It only can get pride out of being better than somebody else. So whatever it is, whether it's we feel really good about ourselves or it's because we've compared ourselves to somebody else and like, well, I got more done at work than so-and-so. I have a bigger house than so-and-so. My family is more put together than that family. Whatever it is, we got something that says, yeah, I'm doing really good. Oh, that's really good. It's really put together. And we build this pride. And what Paul's saying is, I used to be like that. I used to go back and look at all the accomplishments, all the things I was doing, all the work, and say, man, I'm incredible. And then he said, because of Jesus, I've thrown that all away. Because pride is really fragile. It works some days, and in some moments, and in others, it does you no good. It doesn't help at all. In fact, it just rips you apart from the inside out. And so here's all these images together. Paul is saying, doesn't doesn't matter what you say about me. doesn't matter what I'm able to do, what I'm not able to do. Because he doesn't get his joy. Paul doesn't say, you know, I get my satisfaction in being a Pharisee or being an apostle or whatever title. You know, from being the third most successful tent maker in Corinth. You know, he doesn't, he doesn't get any kicks out of that. You know, for me, that looks like, you know, I don't get any sense of, of pride or any sense of like, man, I feel really good because I can say, I'm the preaching minister at Campbellsville Christian Church, or I'm Jenna's husband, or I'm this adjunct, you know, Bible professor at a, at a college. Like, I can't, like, okay, that's, that's all cool. Whatever titles, whatever accomplishments I get, great. But that doesn't make me feel any better about myself. That doesn't say, hey, look at what I've done. Paul says, no, you throw that all out, and instead you say, what matters most 
is not my title. It's not my accomplishments. It's I'm a son of God. I'm a daughter of God. It's I follow the king of the universe. Because here's the deal. No matter how good you are, there are things in this world you cannot handle and you cannot accomplish on your own. There are problems and challenges where you will not have the answers. You won't know what to do. You won't be able to face it. You won't be able to overcome it. But Christ can. So it's like, well, so how do we do this? How do we let our pride turn into confidence? Because that's what I think happened in Paul's life. He's saying, my confidence in the Lord replaced my pride. It took a while, but it, it happened. And here's how I think Paul's making that connection to what we can do. is The first thing that Paul does with these images is he's putting all of his hope and all of his confidence in the resurrection of Jesus. And here's what that means. That doesn't just mean that, hey, someday at the end of my life, whenever that is, I get to die and go to heaven. And that's a great gift. That's a powerful gift that if, if you believe and follow Jesus with everything you've got, that he makes us righteous before God. And no matter how many times we mess up, no matter how many times we sin and fail at the end of the day, God gets to invite us into his family in his kingdom when we die. That's, that's incredible. But Jesus' resurrection also means your life can be different right now. Because Jesus died on the cross and rose from the grave, that actually means you don't have to be the same person all the time. It means you're not stuck in this constant loop of, man, I just keep doing the same things, I keep making the same mistakes, I keep sinning in the exact same ways, and it just feels like I just keep going around the Monopoly board, I'm back at square one, and I've got to start all over again. Because what Paul's saying is, no, because Jesus died and rose from the grave, you can actually be a different person. You can look more and more like him. You don't have to go back to square one and start all over. He can do something with you. So that's the first thing we have to do, is we have to put our hope and our confidence in the resurrection of Jesus, not just for going to heaven someday, but what God can do right now what he has the power to do through the Holy Spirit in our lives today. Because he can actually do that. So here's the second part of that. Is it's what Paul's talking about, that image of Moses. It's partnering with the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And you say, well, how, how do you do that? How does that work? Well, you're going to be shocked when I tell you this. It's uh, read your Bible and pray. I know we say that an awful lot. Read your Bible and pray. But the reason is because that's the bread and butter of the Holy Spirit's ministry. Because a lot of times, the way the Holy Spirit speaks to you is he's going to pull words out of the Bible that have been there for thousands of years. There's, there's a reason he made sure these are the words that we have. And he's going to keep using it. And there are a lot of times in my life where the way the Holy Spirit speaks is not by saying something new, something I've, that's just some brand new idea. It's, hey, you remember that story Jesus told? You should probably do that. Yeah, you're right. That's a good point. You know, you remember this verse? You remember this passage? You should probably do that. You know, when I'm feeling down, the Holy Spirit doesn't have to get really creative. He just says, hey, remember what Paul said to Timothy? Yeah. Come on. You're, come on. You can do this. Remember what Jesus said to his disciples after calming the storm? Don't be troubled. Take heart. All right. Yeah. Okay. Like it just, that's how it works a lot of times. And so here's the deal. Reading the Bible and praying is about, it's not about, hey, having a to-do list. It's not about, man, look how many hours I spend reading the Bible. Look how much I pray. Aren't I really great? That's not what it's about. It's about intentionally putting yourself in the position for the Holy Spirit to work on your life. To say, God, what, what do you want to say to me today? What do you want to do with me? 
where today in my, where might you call me to serve you today? What, what might you have for me? And so if you're still struggling, if you're like, I still struggle, honestly, just to read my Bible and pray. Start there. And look, here, sometimes I think we get discouraged because we feel like every time we read the Bible, every time we pray, it's supposed to be like, you know, we, sometimes we call it like a mountaintop experience. Like it's supposed to be incredible, and it's supposed to be powerful, and I'm supposed to walk out of that, that time with the Lord and have great clarity and have this powerful insight. Sometimes that will happen. A lot of times that won't happen. You'll, you know, there have been a lot of times in my life where, you know, read a passage on a Thursday in my quiet time, nothing crazy about it, no crazy insight, no, like, shocking clarity, just good, you know, spent some time with the Lord, read this passage. But in, you know, two months, the Holy Spirit's going to point back to that. Remember when you read that? Yeah, because the Holy Spirit does a great job of, you get the word in your heart, you become familiar with it, and he just keeps pulling it out and puts it in front of your face. Hey, let me, let me remind you of something to encourage you. Here's this. Here's this word for you. And he'll do that over and over again. So don't let the experience discourage you. If nothing else, just be like, hey, I, spent, I took some time to spend time with the Lord today, and I'm getting more familiar with it. Because as you get familiar with the Bible, the Holy Spirit's just going to keep pulling that up when you need it, putting it in front of your face. Now, there's other ways you can do that, and we call them spiritual disciplines, and there's a whole bunch of those. So if you're like, you know, I've, I'm, I'm doing pretty good with reading my Bible and praying, then you should try some of these other spiritual disciplines. And so here's a way for you to figure out about those. If you go to our website, stevedillchristian.org, click on the resource tab, there's going to be a picture tile that says practicing the way. And that's going to take you to a site where a church has put together all these resources on spiritual disciplines. And so you can just scroll through there, click on any of them, and they've got podcasts and sermons and instructions and readings on, well, how do you do that? Like, they'll explain to you, what is fasting? Where is that in the Bible? How do you do it? Like, all kinds of stuff. So you can try different spiritual disciplines, because all those are is, again, it's an attempt to partner with the Holy Spirit. And here's the other thing you need to know about partnering in the ministry of the Holy Spirit, is you cannot be passive. You cannot be passive. You can't say, well, I follow Jesus now, so I'm just going to suddenly be different, right? Not exactly. Because the Holy Spirit does not like to spoon feed. It's not like, well, I'm just going to kick back in my easy chair, and God, you, you do your work. Go at it. It's not usually what happens. You can't be a passive participant. You also can't just be active. You can't, well, I'm just going to go out and just do a bunch of stuff. You have to be an active participant. You have to partner with the Holy Spirit. You have to do these things. Not to say, I'm doing a bunch of stuff, but to say, I'm creating time, I'm, I'm doing these things to let the Holy Spirit work on me. And it's also, it can be slow, it can be methodical. There are days you won't want to read your Bible, you won't want to pray, you'll be like, I really don't want to fast, I really don't want to do this, do that. But you get up and you stay consistent, because it's slow, it takes a lot of time to get there. In fact, I think this ministry of the Holy Spirit, this, this ability to let confidence rep replace our pride, it takes time to let the Holy Spirit work. And I think it looks a lot like this video that I want us to watch.
So full disclosure, that's a uh, commercial for an exercise company that wants you to do more squats and buy their equipment. There you go. But that's, that's what Paul's talking about. Being transformed into the image of Christ is that. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you so much for your presence in our lives, especially when when life is really, really hard. I'm so thankful that, that you're strong enough because you went to the cross, you beat sin, you beat death, you beat shame, you beat guilt, and you rose from the grave. And so whatever we're going through, you're the one who can fight for us and fight with us. And so I thank you for all the moments in our lives when we just so desperately need your help and that you've come to our rescue. And Holy Spirit, I ask that you'd help us to have the humility to seek your help when we need it, to not trust in ourselves, but to trust in you instead. And Holy Spirit, help us to do the hard work of participating with you so that you can transform us. Help us all to look more and more like Jesus. It's in your name that I pray. Amen. So as we continue to worship today, if you're in this room and you have not decided to follow Jesus yet, I'd love to talk with you because following Jesus is the way that you can be a different person. It's the only way you can overcome the challenges in your life, including the challenge of death. And if you're online, the same invitation for you. All the information is on your screen and we'd love for you to reach out and we'll be happy to talk with you, meet with you about how you can follow Jesus. So I'm going to...